Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. And this is another special episode with me, Ahmed Paul. And today I have a very special guest and we've met in the online wonderful world of, of internet. We ran into each other and have had conversations that have been, I don't know, there's just an enormous spark of curiosity in me. And so I'm really happy that you agreed to come on the podcast with me, Jonathan Chadwick, and explore, and especially on the topic of stories. So you said something in our last call. There are two things that really grabbed me, both the fact that you see stories as dialogue. That was intriguing. So I would love to, to get into that. And also something around speaking truth to power, which I thought was very interesting. And finally, the truth is interactive which has been so alive in me and unfolding in me, uh, with me, since we spoke last in a lot of ways. So I'm really, really happy to have you here. And I'm not going to try to introduce you, but rather I would invite you to do so um, yourself by, by answering the very open and sometimes difficult, sometimes simple question of, uh, so Jonathan Chadwick, who are you? I'm... Um... It's very interesting when, when, when you're asked that question because uh, I wasn't expecting you to ask it. And um, so I'm a man. Who am I? I'm somebody that isn't expected to answer that question, I suppose, is one way of, of putting it. Um, I mean, you've said a number of things at the beginning of this exchange already. You've planted an idea about story and you've planted an idea about speaking truth to power and the interactivity of truth. So I'm obviously somebody that inspires you to ask those questions. Um, and um, so I, I, I'm, a, I'm a thinker, I'm a writer, I'm, I'm a theatre practitioner, I've trained actors. I mean, if, if one was to think about who one is um, from the point of view of the um, competences that one had and, uh, and looked at, at from that point of view, one would be looking at from a particular perspective, the perspective of kind of the world of, let's call it business or economics or, or whatever, making a livelihood, that, that I would be saying, well, who are you? I have these skills, I have that skill. As if there is a kind of proposition behind it that, in fact, you should engage with me in a particular way. You'd place me in a certain status with re regard to other people who am I? What have I done with my life? Where, you know, because one thing um, that that makes obvious is that um, I'm getting towards the end of it. I'm, um, you know, in my early 70s, and uh, you have to start thinking at that point in your life about what's happened and, and what, what you've got left to do in, in a way. Although I'm not fixing to die immediately, it certainly occurs to me that that's something that I need to start thinking about or have started thinking about. And then also when, when one, in, in this day and age when we're talking about identity and thinking about identity and knowing that people are in a way defined by their, by their identity at a certain kind of level and in a certain frame. Um, you know, I'm English. You know, you could start from that point of view and start building that. Um, I mean, that's where I was born. I was born in England. 
and so on and so on. And there would be a whole life story about what that means and where I've been and what I've done from that point of view. So I, I think that that really the the answer to your question about who am I, I'm the spe- I'm the person that's speaking to you now, is the best answer to that I think. And you're hearing my voice. Um, you can't see me, but you're hearing my voice. And even by what I've said, a whole series of of things will occur to you. I think if you're listening, and and you're so further than that, there's too much to say. If I was to start on any one of those, you know, we would never get to talk about more interesting things um, than than me, in a way. I mean, I, I hope that's not falsely humble, but um, the exchanges and the, the feelings of, of, of curiosity are entirely mutual. You know that. We spoke about that already. And um, when you when you mentioned about story, I believe that that is a, a place where our curiosity and engagement meet, in a way. I, I, I wouldn't put myself forward as somebody that was primarily interested in story or narrative, although actually everything that I do is concerned with story and narrative. Now, that, that's rather peculiar. But I think that what you're referring to when you refer to this idea of story as dialogue was the simple, not fact, but quality of stories, which mean that really when we listen to stories, we listen to them with our own story. And therefore, stories are always a dialogue between the story that's being told and the story that it inhabits the listener. Because we don't listen to stories with our ears or eyes or or at least they're the, only the primary receptors. I'm not even sure that they're disconnected in terms of order because so quickly the word goes to the centre and so quickly the tone goes to the centre and so quickly the sequence goes to the centre and at the centre is the story of the person that you're talking to. And I don't think you would need to be a a theatre practitioner, to know that the actor cannot act. It's an absurd idea to think that the actor acts on their own, but it isn't just a question of of the audience uh, looking or hearing. It's the presence of the audience that is important, the whole presence of the human beings engaged in that act. And it's so, so I think that that's why I would, I would say that the um, that story is 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 dialogue, and um, I, I don't know whether that makes sense or not, but but that's certainly something that is almost a kind of technical um, perception. I mean, it's something that if you haven't, if you, if I didn't believe that, I would be ignoring some of the kind of materiality of the work that I've done. It's actually, that's what happens. And I think that's that's very important. I mean, even when you tell somebody else their story, that means that their experience appears as a story to them. That also, although that seems to flat or, or diminish dialogue, 
it, it, it doesn't at all um, d- diminish it. In fact, it, it, it augments it and, and heightens it. I mean, one piece of work, a, a piece of work that took a few years to accomplish, of which I'm particularly proud, and was some work that we did in, um, in Kosovo for, with working with the um, United Nations Office of Missing Persons and Forensics. And there, what we were engaged with was, I was engaged to create theatre in the context of the work of the Office of Missing Persons and Forensics. And what their work consisted of was the the reclamation, reconstitution and delivery back to the families of the remains, the mortal remains of people who who had been killed during the conflict. So they were responsible for looking at mass graves and um, and finding out who um, the people were, and then deli- making making um, the the delivery of those. But there were other things that they had to do. The person that ran the um, the office of missing persons and forensics was a man called Pablo Baraybar, and he was a, a, a Peruvian. He had seen the impact of theatre work in the period following the kind of the civil war in Peru, and he'd recognised that 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 had been a major therapeutic, social therapeutic process that had that had been triggered or enhanced by that um, theatre intervention. So it was him that lay behind the project. And his keynote was to de-victimise the victim. Now, what does that process involve? What does de-victimising the victim? Because he recognised that by holding on to victim status, it meant that people were locked into their own pain. They couldn't recognise anybody else's pain. They only could look out at a world that could not um, understand their pain and that victimhood separated themselves from the world and probably from each other. So he felt that that working um, in this way might enhance the work that he was doing and it was coming to the end of the time when that operation was, um, you know, it, truly effective. Um, the, the returning of the bodies. I mean, we would stop our work occasionally, and one of the people that worked with the um, Office of Missing Persons and Forensics would say, oh, "I'm sorry, I've, I'm, I'm just got to go and do a, a, um, a handover." And I, I actually didn't know what that was at, at the beginning, but in fact, what he had to do was to go and hand over um, a plastic bag with bones in it. And you can imagine that in that circumstance, for the um, for that office of missing, it was probably the only thing that the United Nations really did for Kosovo, in a way. I mean, it poured. A, I mean, the United Nations put a lot of money into it, but it was really working with the communities of the missing. And but it was the most unpopular institution in the array of institutions. People projected their hatred towards that particular office because. The grief of people who had not been returned their loved ones was unassuageable. And also, you will immediately know that that became the prey of 
politicians, if you have those kinds of processes happening in a society which are to do with this withdrawal into the um, the identity of the victim, then there is no chance that there'll be an opening to the other. But the reason why I'm telling the story is because once we actually started the, the project, in the second phase of the project, we put on a, a kind of metaphorical play in the first part of the project, um, and, and we did so um, the same play to both sides, to the Serbian community and to the Albanian community. We put on the same play in different languages. And I was rehearsing with different companies of actors, um, Serbian and Albanian, on the same play, and we put it on in different venues. And But nevertheless, that project worked. In the second phase of the project, we just simply got stories. You know, the Serbian company that I had um, with a writer, we collected stories from the Serbian community and the Albanian community work was done in the same way. We connected with the families of the, of the missing, the communities of the missing in both instances. We made no facile attempt to bring the two communities together. That wasn't something that we, that we were um, to do. But at the performances that were given, the Office of Missing Persons was, uh, and Forensics were the, were the producers People were, they were watching their own stories effectively acted by actors. And people came up um, to, the, to the people from the Office of Missing Persons and Forensics and said, at last, at last, you're doing something for us. That was to do with recognising their pain recognizing what they'd been through but what they were recognizing in the stories was themselves their own stories but through theater they could see that their stories were performable and therefore they were at the same time were the stories of the other so when i'm talking about stories being dialogues it it's not just to do with two people it's to do with a deep inner dialogue between yourself as yourself and yourself as the other. And that double figure of the actor being both themselves and the other is a kind of metaphor for me to say that that stories are dialogues. So that's why I say it's about the materiality of what I've done or what I do. It's not just a, um, a kind of idea. Terribly long answer to a question or or, or a, a addressing a point, but I th I'm, I hope you appreciate that the what I'm saying about it's a wonderful arc, and there is um, two things that I wanted to that I believe I caught sight of in what you were saying, but and one of them is that that idea of that you could potentially use theater as a completion to a traumatic event or so. I mean, the, a lot of the trauma. Uh, people and I, I'm looking at like Peter Levine and like uh, the, the people that have come out of, of his school of trauma, where they are looking at trauma as something that's locked up, energy that's locked up physically, and it's something that you cannot escape from. It's an event that you are stuck in, that you're interacting with, and then one of the key aspects of healing that trauma is to allow it to complete, to allow the biological response, the biological being to complete the response and release those energies so they are not stuck in you anymore, so that you gain access to them again. And it sounds like in 
putting that internal dialogue outside of you or perceiving it as if it's it's happening also outside of you or having it told back to you, you could probably both find new perspectives, but also potentially see new sides that were there that you didn't see and, and like all of that. So then interacting with it as a, an external thing rather than an internal thing, it changes the whole setup of the story or um yeah i think i think that's right i think it's i mean in a way the space of the story for us here at this moment in time really is 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 a kind of headspace isn't it because it's the voice that can be heard um but just simply the business of putting something out in front of you in other in the manner not that has a sort of correspondence to that of putting an object in front of you. But really what, what it is, it, what it's to do with, is to do with the aesthetic space. It is bound to, it, well, it's not bound to be, but it, it is likely to be um, an embodiment of an interior movement. If you put something in the space of performance, it's likely to be an externalization of an internal movement of emotion and will that you that you you're dealing with simply the act of creating the aesthetic space the space where all perceptions are reduced to very very complicated kinds of signs of movement and interaction in the space, if you reduced it to or elevated it to a particular kind of um, event in the space, theatre must, you know, the work of the actor is entirely to do with connecting the inner with the outer. That, that's what you're doing. You're, you're trying to make that fluent. You're trying to make that happen. You're, you're something external happens it becomes internal something internal happens it becomes external so i mean that is the transport of the of the human soul in theater and it has to have that arrival in the space because it's that's what the theater is so yes i think that it's not gone without recognition that theater is to some extent exactly as you described um, really, the a sort of completion. It relies on what has happened to people, and it takes what has happened to people, and it makes it into something that they can see and feel, and that that is out there, that is common and shared, and that's very important. But I mean, we're aware of the fact that the Greek. I mean, just as an example, the Greek temple was dedicated to Asclepios, the um, the god of, of healing. And we're very aware that a lot of the, um, the Greek literature, dramatic literature, was aimed towards precisely this issue of trauma. I mean, Homer's work is absolutely to do with the trauma of war. And if you you know reading, there's an American practitioner that has picked that up and looked at, and his name is Jonathan Shea, and he's looked at that issue of how these stories relate to the basic experience of war and coming home from war. And I mean, that journey is the journey of the Odyssey, obviously, 
but also it, to some extent it, it's what the Iliad is about. And he picks that up because what he's working with is veterans from the Vietnam War. And he's looking at the kind of stories that hold them in all senses of the word, that hold them like an embrace, but hold their minds together. And he's looking at these those stories as, as being um, relevant. So, yeah, I th- absolutely, that's true, I think, that idea of completion. The other thing that kind of popped up is also the the potential for it to end. That once you are, if you are stuck in a story or in an experience or in a memory, then it doesn't end. I mean, you keep, it keeps, it keeps happening to you because it's as real as it ever was. But if you can watch, you can, you're in the theater and you're watching the play and then you can, it, it ends and you clap and, you know, there's, there's a climax and then you can leave. I'm thinking that might also be significant in the context. No, it's hugely, it's hugely significant. And I mean, that's why usually um, theatres are special places that can be arrived at and left. I know that sounds slightly too obvious to actually be in, engage anybody's interest at all. But theatres are places that must be um, special. They're prepared in whatever, however rudimentary the preparation is, they must be prepared. And the people that are going to deliver the the performance, however little time they have, it's still, they must be prepared. And the people that come to see this extraordinary manifestation of the human spirit must be able, at the end of it, to leave, um, to leave the theatre, either by clapping which is a most extraordinary thing to do really at the end of a piece of theater but it is it is a way of releasing the the actors and releasing the audience it claps it literally beats the air as a way of banishing the story and and letting and you know I mean, what is very interesting, because at the end of um, Shakespeare's last play, as far as we know, of course, there's always um, academics that will come along and say, ah, it wasn't actually his last play, um, The Tempest. At the end of it, Prospero says, we, we will remain here if you don't release us. You need to release us. And I, I can't quote the actual lines that Prospero has at the end of the tempest, but he's actually saying, you must release us with your hands. So he's inviting the audience to clap, not because he wants to hear how much, how well they've done, but simply to release the messages of the play and the perceptions of the play and the magic of the play to release it into the social structures and relationships and processes that happen outside the theatre. And of course, the wall around the theatre is extremely important because the wall around the theatre cuts off the outside world so that people who can't see into the theatre, who are not in the theatre, that's very, very important because that wall transforms itself into the the invisible wall that occurs between the actors 
and the audience. The outside wall allows that other wall to take place because the audience are the people who are allowed in to see what the actors are doing. So that outside wall relates to this inner wall and that allows for the actors to create within the space that is um, created by those walls a world, the dramatic world of the play. And they're allowed, they're able to create that world by means of this device, which is a building. And they're able to control what the audience sees and doesn't see. Most often, unless the actors decide that they're going to be present on the stage all the time, actors will come and go and will make their exits and entrances. So that actually means that it's predicated on the idea that there's a space around the world that the actors are trying to create because actors will arrive from different locations to the locations of the dramatic action. And all of that is constructed around the fundamental role of the theatre, which is to make visible the invisible. And that, in, that, in, that invisible is the inner. And, and what we do in the theatre is we embody the inner, inner life. And therefore, that is one way in which the, the theatre makes the invisible visible. That's a very important function to, to go somewhere to see something that is normally invisible. Yeah. And then you get to bring it with you. So there's, there's, um, it's the wall, it's temporary. And then it, you have some sort of osmosis where these ideas are kind of, you know, brought, they are, they are alive in the people and they're interacting with the people that have seen the play. And then they can, as you said, be allowed to influence and live within them and influence like spread into the relationships that they have outside. And, and so that's, yeah. Wow. That's a beautiful description of theater. And I've never, I've, I've been to the theater, um, but I've never spent much time to, to think about it. And Well, you've, you've already been very perceptive about it in the sense of knowing that it, in some way it, it, it is a completion and that it's something that ends. So, you you know, it, that that's right. I mean, what you've said is right. If you if you thought of it as being a field, and you thought of it as being like a magnet drawn across a series of iron filings, you thought of it as being a reorganization in some way, that would be maybe another way of looking at it, that the people that come to a play go away reorganized and it's it's also beautiful the way you introduce or suggest uh, this idea of the co-creation happening i mean the creation is happening it has happened for a while on stage and of which you are watching the the product of as an audience but it is, there's also co-creation and agency in participating in this performance because it is that. So, I mean, <laughs> what it brings me to think of is that old um, analogy of the, the the tree in the woods and it falls and, you know, just make a sound. And the, the sound that it makes, you could argue that it's 
it's happening internally. You know, it, it doesn't make a sound until it's actually interpreted as sound by by the audience in a way. And so the play is going to be the same. And even though you are doing the same movements each time, each night on stage, because you've rehearsed in that way, I mean, the play is completely different because of who is watching and, and what, what it sparks in them and that echoing or that um, resonance uh, in people are different. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very much to do with that kind of partnership with the audience, yeah. yeah. I mean, in, in, and in a way, that's that could move, move us on to why it is that I believe that this idea of a kind of activism that is based on knowledge that is created in order to seize upon truths that then can be spoken to power is so mean in a way so craven and so obviously um, reconstructive of the relationships that are pre-existing and that are the cause of the problem. You know, it's rather like the Einstein, um, Einstein's perception that you're not going to, the thinking that, got, that, that has got you into the problem is not the thinking that is going to be able to solve the problem. I want to now apologise to Albert. Um, Einstein for mangling his quote, but he won't mind, I'm sure. When I when you first spoke, I thought that's interesting. Is there a story inherent in speaking truth to power? What's the story there? Does it imply a story? What? How does that that story resonate with how we think the world works? Is you know is there a story in that? Mm. That phrase, and um, I began to think when you described at the beginning of our exchange some of these prompts that that you, you you wanted to talk about how story related to that business of speaking truth to power. Who's powerful? Why don't they already know the truth? Do they really know the truth? Is it the truth anyway that is created? I think that in this instance, it's usually science. Well, you know, what in that respect is science? And is it only the responsibility of scientists to know the truth? And who's carrying that truth? There's lots and lots of questions which, um, which surround that idea. And, you know, we, we're, we're coming up in this country now to the Conference of the Parties 26 in Glasgow later in the year, in, I think it's in November. And one of the kind of epicenters of climate change discourse is this meeting between the Conference of the Parties and it's to do with the relationship between the scientific world and the political world and trying to work out what the... Uh, what the consequences of what has happened is and what kind of future objectives can be created for uh, the politicians in, in the light of what the scientists offer. Uh, it's very, very complicated. Um, issues lie underneath the surface of that. But what tends to happen is that these colloquies produce crystal um numerical answers to questions of enormous complexity 
1.5 in 50 years. And they try to reduce it to a very simple, hard truth. And what I think strikes me most of all is that that really, it's a reduction of the situation to such absurd proportions. And also inherently, it's to do with fear and making people feel scared about the end of the world mm. and and say and and also in excites heroism and um martyrdom and these kinds of stories about how we can save the planet which is not at issue by the way at all the planet is going to to carry on but, <laughs> yeah. but there's this kind of it, 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 you know feeling of oh god it's all what what will my children my children's children and what and we've got to do it we've only got five years left and this sort of talk arrives out of this uh conference that um that, that, that between the scientists and the politicians and i feel it's it's really it's theater of a non-participatory sort in a way yeah it, we, I think that, that what we want is more participation. We don't want to be handed down this spectacle of speaking truth to power. And the interesting thing, I mean, it leads us to how I perceived or like what, one of the many, many, many threads that have propagated through my system with the concept of truth being interactive, then it's, a, it's alive, but it's not... It's also not relative in a sense. Like it's, there is that saying of like truth is relative and then it depends on where you are sitting and, and look, but, but there are, I mean, I, I, I tend to believe that there are at least, you know, there, there are certain things that there's something that there's something, there's such a thing as truth. Let's put it that way. But I don't think we are fully equipped to see it alone. No, I think that's right. I think that, I think that we're, really we can't know the world on our own it's an absurdity we have to know together so whereas truth isn't relative as a quality of truth the action of truth and finding truth is relational i would call it relational rather than relative because because it's something that we we discover together and it's not just to do with what we happen to agree on it's more than that and it is it is to some extent i believe momentary that doesn't mean it's not profound, but it is, it, it's momentary. And, um, and I think as soon as, I mean, in my belief, the fundamental work on this kind of epistemology was done with, by quantum mechanics and quantum physics. It seems to me that at that point, physics as such really dominated natural philosophy and the issues of ontology and epistemology that exists within what we know and what we think exists, how we know and what we think exists, started to be worked through and enacted in that um, work that was done in the early part of the, um, the last century. I think that, that really the, the, the extraordinary event in that work was the recognition, well, it, it, the, the recognition of event, really, that matter was event and that 
knowing what was happening was interactive with the actual what is known, that there became the possibility of the knower and the known, which is a quote more or less directly from Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, that the knower and the known were in fact united in some way. That doesn't mean that there's not truth. That means that there's lots of truth. And um, and I think, it, I think that's why I would say that it's to do with it being relational or, or interactive. Um, because nature, we are, a, it's recognition that we are a part of nature and that when we know nature, nature knows us and reaches up to us in our knowing. And um, that seems to actually happen in the, in the exploration of um, elementary particles. That, that actually um, happens. It seems to happen more. It's more obvious in a way when, it get, when you get down to this, this micro level that that's what's happening in, in our knowing. What also comes up to me, I, was just, I just was introduced to, and now I lost her first name, uh, but it's a, it's a feminist philosopher uh, called Braidotti in the last last name and listen to like a, a 50 minute um speech or a performance i would say it's a performance that she gave at at a conference and she said so many wonderful things that kind of clicked into way but she was talking about both this idea that identity is not primary primary it's kind of something that we we pick up and we let go and all of that stuff and then the other thing that she was speaking of was the the tools of language, language being a tool of separation. So it is something that that naturally separates us. And where I wanted to go with it was that it's a bit of a roundabout, but um, I was reading, I was sent a chapter of, of a book on regenerative design. And this is written, you know, with this wonderful intention of let's design the world regeneratively. And I was reading the whole chapter and I, you know, it's a nice characterization of a division of, or like sort of listing of um, how you can think about regenerative design and different paradigms and different waves and so forth. But the language is still that of separation and the tonality is that of, I don't know if it's just my interpretation, it might be that, but it felt, it feels like superiority that we are primary. There is a, there's an inherent order there somewhere which is, it might just be implied, it might not be implied at all, it might just be, you know, my resonance that is, that is reading it in that way. Well, are, you, are you saying that there is an inherent design in the, in, in the environment, in the other, in the, in the materiality of our lives? And maybe, but what I'm saying is that the book is about, the, the book is about how we can redesign the other. Um, and that's, I think that's kind of the, the fallacy is, is that, you know, how can you ever, how can, you know, and, and then again, it comes in the question of consent and, and domination and respect and interaction and all of those, all of those words just pop alive in me. But I'm very hopeful about the connection that you've made to regenerative des- design. I, I, I feel that that's, there's something something very important about being able to say that you are going to enter or that we can as human beings 
enter the process of regeneration and participate in regeneration. And I think that that's very hopeful and it, and it may well bring up apprehensions. But I, I also think it's quite interesting that the person that you, um, you listened to um, was a woman. I mean, because for me, the the the, the best book that I've um, read about, for example, quantum physics, is a book by Karen Barad called "Meeting the Universe Halfway." Now, even within the title of the book, we can see that there is that sense of meeting, of interaction. Of, re- of the possibility of working with and regeneration, and I think that's I think that I, th- I think there's very, something very very hopeful about, about that. Um, that and I th- I've got a feeling that it goes back to something that I've been talking about and thinking about recently, which is the remarkable work of Murray Bookchin, um, who wrote the ideology of um, the ecology of freedom. Um, and his perception is that at a certain point in human development, I'm going to be, I'm going to describe this in very broad terms, and I apologise to Murray Bookchin. Anyway, but at a certain point in human development, for reasons that really are, I think, the thing that we should be exploring most thoroughly, that we, as a species, we turned our attention and the priority of our societies, not all at once, but gradually towards production rather than reproduction. So I think that when you're talking about regeneration, it reminds me of this issue. And I believe that you can say that that priority taken up by production over reproduction happened at the um, Neolithic Revolution. You could sort of say that it's the really when people started husbanding um, animals and cultivating the land and becoming sedentary, that movement was the movement that brought about the increasing domination of uh, masculinism, of men, of of male hierarchies as a way of organizing that new production potential, which based itself to, to a large extent on oppressing um, reproduction. And what Bookchin says is that, that, that the moment where human beings started to exploit nature take up an exploitative relationship towards nature was the same moment that they that they started to oppress themselves another human group and that human group was women so the primary movement in human history towards looking at the world as object as something to be exploited was the same moment as it were as the moment where people, where men decided to oppress women as a group. I mean, it sounds slightly um, loopy, but it's a good loop to be on, that, that I'm not surprised that those perceptions were brought by women.
because there there would be a consciousness of in in women that is easier for them perhaps to get at maybe than than for men. See how how I can make this leap. It um, what came up to me. I've never thought about it in terms of production versus reproduction. I think that's that's going to be another one of those that we're going to be carrying with me for a while now. Um, but there's something there in relation to you know masculinity, femininity, production, reproduction, and then also that the the uncertainty. And I was recently playing with an idea of we've we've had a, a period, a relatively short period uh, in in the sort of event. If we look at it on, on with an evolutionary lens of our species, where we have had we we were allowed to live in the perception that we are uh, it's it's a small world that we know most of, you know, and and that perception is kind of collapsing on itself. And so, as a species, we are stepping in at this moment. We are stepping into uncertainty and and things are you know those those simple truths those crystallized you know that one surface that you show the mirror that you show you know we are becoming more and more aware it's harder to and harder to hide the fact that there is a backside to that mirror and maybe it's not just a backside it might, it might be multifaceted and even though you're just showing that one surface you know it has so many other sides um so i don't know where i want to go with that but i i wanted to bring in uncertainty into that um, competition of, of production and reproduction, and and see how how that destabilization of I guess that's the it, the destabilization uncertainty will destabilize the hierarchy. Or the hierarchy is the response I think to a, it's a structural response to uncertainty to want to try to. I think that's I I understand. I think I understand. I think I can see that that that's connected. I think the issue of uncertainty and how we engage with it emotionally and in our thinking is and and i think this is to do with complexity and um i think it's very very important i think the 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 i i know that you're 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 making a link between that and the processes that seem to be going on in our species life really um where we can begin to recognize that we are a species that that emit, admits the possibility of extinction um in fact it really tells us that we are we will become extinct like every other species there's no earthly reason to to think that we as a as a species will will not become extinct and it's just a question of of sort of time, really, but the, the issue of extinction also raises issues of, of re- regeneration and and reproduction in a very particular kind of way. In my view, I think that that's true, and I think that I'm not not absolutely sure how they relate, how it relates to um, uncertainty, but it, it it certainly feels to me as if human beings in the current period are faced with um, information that they may turn away from because it's just too much and actually sometimes it's really boring that 
where they have to engage with the sort of complexity of the whole. And I think that when you said when you started off talking about the fact that we seem to be um, moving from a, a sort of narrow world in in which we know a lot, and that somehow that narrow world in which we know a lot is somehow produced by the kind of knowledge that one might associate with the building of hierarchies which penetrate all our academic life, all our political life, all our spiritual life, are dominated by these hierarchies where the, where the truth is coming from the top down. And we realise that, that actually transformation now and, and humanity now really relies on a, on a more, much more bottom-up movement of, of we also can see that 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 movement is uncertain it's bound to be uncertain because there are so there are so many more actors so many more players so admitting bioregionalism admitting localism admitting that people must be able to take control of their lives it's going to be chaotic and beautiful and I think that that I think that diversity is also the issue of diversity is also connected to that. So I I, I appreciate very much you're making that connection um, between uncertainty and the, the sort of pre-existing, almost solid science that we 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 sort of still inheriting in a way and still moving beyond or transcending moving away from what what came up in when you're saying that is that the as a society we have yet to discover the pure joy that is also available in the statement i don't know you know it's like yeah. how how on earth are we going to live together how is it going to work i don't know but but that is the call to adventure you know that is the start of a story Yes, it's strange, isn't it? It's, it's such a shame. I mean, we're involved in such complicated systems. I mean, that's the that, the thing is that at the moment, for example, because the, the the so-called government here have invested in millions and millions and millions of pounds in a test and trace system that actually means, I think it was something like a million or half a million people got pinged by this app. Uh, they couldn't go to work, and that meant that food couldn't be delivered, um, and that meant that there was a crisis in food industries. That means that there's a, f- a crisis in food distribution. That means there's a crisis in the shops. That means that people are in crisis. The, the, the system they've put their their reliance on that system. Okay, that was a mistake, but also it, it's quite people are quite scared. It's frightening to think. Because we don't know where um, the f- our food comes from, it, it's scary when it's when it's not there. Because instinctively we're going to think, actually, I can't get any. I can't, you know, the 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 lineament. But also, I think that that fear is the other side of the uncertainty, if you like. And being able to be together, both in knowledge and in not knowing, in knowing and in not knowing. I think is is fine, but it, it, you're absolutely right. It's so difficult for people to understand that knowing anything starts must do if knowledge is an act 
is is actually an activity and can't think what else it is if it's not an activity then you it obviously is is predicated on not knowing it, it's obvious it's so obvious it's it, it's so exciting obviously to think I don't know I don't know but of course that I don't know is engaged by or produces or interacts with fear is, is a problem so I don't quite know how to address that but um, because our system ten has tended to reduce people, I think, a little bit and make them dependent. And they've been told that that dependence is really freedom, and that's there are problems about what we've been what we've been told by the political elites that we live live with. And interestingly, it kind of ties back to one of the first things you said in there when when I when I surprised you with the question of who you were. Uh, or are, or, you know, you said something to the extent of like, if I reduce it, you know, it, it would be, um, I heard it as I'm not just what I've done. That that might not be the best description of who I am right now. Um, and so, but, and yet, let's say the story in our lives that we are mostly interacting with is that the the one of the things that we have done. And normally in that, capitalistic extractive context and so the the fact that we are now seeing women let's say put up uh, you know child raising on their cvs i think that's incredibly empowering and, and sort of it's so natural you know but if i was sitting in an interview situation and deciding if i want to work with somebody i probably would like to i should have probably asked them more about sort of what are the relationships like in your life you know that would probably say more about the person than what are the things that you have done you know what did you accomplish how many but it's interesting isn't it that um i mean that leads one to think about i mean that first question you ask which i couldn't really answer is to do with self and and how how we construct ourselves it's not an easy issue um because to some extent, I feel that there are strong forces. I mean, it's interesting that we talk in terms of a CV, in terms of a bundle of, of competences. We talk about a basket of identities from which we can choose and select which identity we are. And we know all of those things are functional because they function within a system that, that looks at people as labour power and is constantly trying to price them according to the labor market and and you very accurately describe one of the processes in that labor market which is that of the interview and looking at what it is what competences people bring into play and and considering that there may be a broader sense of of competences that are brought into play than had hitherto been the case because of this issue of reproduction but i think it I have a feeling that it it somehow goes goes wider than that. I mean, just going back on some of the, the context that we first met in, which was very much to do with uh, neuroscience and cognitive science, because we met at a seminar that, that was to do with that. I've recently read a very small amount of the work of a practitioner called Rainer Mousefeld, because I have no, I don't really speak German. I don't, I can't read German easily. Most of his work is in German, but he's a cognitive psychologist 
but he's talking about neoliberalism and he's talking about the fact that this particular movement of our system, patriarchal system, capitalism, I think of capitalism just simply being a, a development of patriarchy, of neoliberalism, which sort of wants to make patriarchy and capitalism sort of disappear, pretends to be the system that doesn't have these other ways of of describing it. It just is. It's just, that seems to me to be the nature of the system. It seems to me that, or and it seems to him, that it's based on preying on human weakness. And that means that it preys upon the very construction of ourselves. I think we're in a, a, um, a social system, a political system, an ideological system, which actually invites us to believe that the, the frame that we actually judge our own behavior is different from the frame that we use to judge other people's behavior, or to to put it slightly differently, that the system takes advantage of that natural inherent characteristic that the human being tends to look at its own actions with a different frame of reference from the frame of reference that it uses to look at the actions of the other. And it seems to me that what's happened what's happened is that socially the so, the society has been constructed around a kind of license for the development of that weakness and that we've been asked to be be selfish effectively and that that has been honored and validated by the system that we've been taught that we're atoms if we are selfish we are in in a way being rational and that rationality is actually the natural and the way the world works and the world works better when everybody is just looking after uh, is just looking after themselves and being selfish and rational it leads to widespread a kind of narcissism it's a sort of pathology i i i think i think that's a problem that we've got. By the way, for a period of time when I was talking then, you left the screen and I found myself talking about the composition of the self, but I found myself talking to myself and I was a bit, it was a bit freaky, I mean, but anyway, we'll we'll leave it inside. (laughs) I'm so sorry about that. No, no, don't worry, don't worry, you're allowed to to go off and, and, uh, you know. No, the, the, uh, actually the internet uh, decided to drop out, so I, I don't know what what happened. The router said, uh, I've had enough. You've been talking too much. Uh, <laughs> you're done. So it cut me off. But I did miss a, a lot of that. So I don't know what to, to respond to, um, unfortunately. Uh, um, it's a bit fresh, this. A bit n- new, and, and I'm thinking it through, because we entered this space of, of thinking about the self and, you know, like you could say that, that the self is protean, that the relationship I have to myself is the relationship that anybody might have to themselves living 100,000 years ago or 12,000 years ago, that, that something about the human being and its relationship to its environment, which is in sort of 
which is protean, it can't change. But I believe that we have been, sh- we are shaped by the society that we're a part of. And that I was saying that the prevailing pressures within the systems that we're asked to engage with is reflecting back to us an idea of ourselves, which is based on a kind of weakness in us rather than a strength. You know, and it's, it's sort of cultivating that re- weakness. That's why I, I feel as if I, I, I am a social revolutionary. I want to see a fundamental change of the system that we live in. It, and it's as fundamental as this, that this weak point the system predates on is the fact that inherently and naturally human beings judge their own behaviour by a difference frame of reference than that which they employ when they're judging other people's behavior or actions. And actually you think, well, in a way that's our our actions must seem different than the actions of others. It's very difficult to see ourselves as the other axiomatically. Of course, how can I think of myself as the other? And this involves these epistemological questions that we were talking about earlier. But our system has encouraged us to emphasize that issue of of our own selfishness and to encourage us that that's good. You should be an individual in that sense, that, that being selfish and getting things for yourself is a good thing and that that's rational and so on and so on and so on. And, that's, and these are enacted through the actual economic and production system itself. And I I think this is the outcome of the production orientation that I spoke about earlier. I think it's to do with a, a version of individuality which is primarily based on being a man. I mean, for example, I think that women have a slightly different or quite different relationship to themselves since they actually can experience another self inside them and that other self can become another human being. And I feel that that actually presupposes them quite, in a way, men really do need women, not because we need women to, um, to give birth, but we need them to tell us what it's like to be human in that sense of not being so cut off from the other. But I think that patriarchy and capitalism and neoliberalism, all this stuff, the, the system that we're in, is telling us that actually women in their liberation, for example, in this recent period, can become more like men. And, and that, that seems to me to be sort of, sort of kind of like the wrong way around, really. But it's based, in my view, on this preying on weakness in our makeup, which is probably to do with, it's probably to do with our early birth, the fact that we're born in a state of physical dependence in a way that no other animal is um, and that we have to spend, you know, a certain proportion of our lives, maybe a a tenth of our lives, if we're lucky, um, um, you know, dependent on, you know, you're a parent, I've been a a parent, um, I've got grandchildren now and so on. But, um, But the children are dependent on us and that's the nature of our humanity and that's, makes such a lot of difference. And that's, you know, don't you, that this is connected to the fact that um, there's a trade-off between being erect and standing and being able to walk 
bipedalism, it's called, and the, the narrowness of the birth canal in the human female and the largeness of our heads, all these factors are in an, a dance with each other. And that, that means that the human infant has is born early because the head just about gets through the birth canal. Um, but, you know, we need these, apparently we need these big heads fuck knows why i mean <laughs> but we seem to we seem to be the big big the big head is to do with our ability to grasp complex systems and social systems and to work things out i'm also looking at, I'm, I'm like I'm, i'm wondering which leg to stand and if i should be the responsible um podcast host here and say like we've we've passed our hour and, and no and don't you don't be the responsible uh, podcast host. but I, i wanted to drop one more um thing um, idea concept that i've been playing with in because it seems to be it, it relates the thing that comes up to me and it's a tangent but it's it's so strongly related to the the arc that you are drawing here with with sort of neoliberalism like patriarchy hierarchy capitalism what strikes me is that they're all they're all ideas and fundamental to ideas Um, if we take them seriously, is that the, um, our mind are, minds are trustworthy, and and what I'm I've been playing a lot with embodiment lately, and and different techniques for embodiment and for trauma release, and also for for self discovery, and uh, I'm kind of finding my way. I used to be a dancer, and so I haven't felt like a dancer for a really long time, and now I'm starting to move again in a way that I haven't done for a really long time, and it. There's such release in that, so much joy and, and power. And like I'm starting to do these moving meditations. And But there's a neuroscientist as well that's called Ian McGilchrist. And he talks about the left and right hemisphere. And he's talking about them in the terms of the master and the emissary. Those are his terms for it. And I'm, I can't help but think, you know, what if he has it wrong altogether? What if it's not left and right? What if it's sort of the biology and it's the mind, you know? where you have the mind as the emissary it's it's the the super certain uh the, the the one that gets hooked up on on all these things and he has no idea why he needs uh the master the body you know because he knows everything so so why would he there's no not a shred of uncertainty in this mind of ours um which you know i think tends to be even for all of us i think the mind is probably more of a he than than anything else and then there's the she the body the femininity the biology that is sort of is uh It's primary. It's the first thing that we interact with. It's the only thing that we interact with. And there's in, in the biology, there's the complexity, the full complexity, all the interactions between all the different neurons and all these things that we have not, you know, even started to begin to figure out. We're just putting plaster, you know, even if it's chemical band-aids, we're just putting band-aids on, on and in our bodies, um, on everything. We are not even thinking about, you know, trying to solve things actually in this in, amazingly complex organism that we are also. That we also are, but it it just sparked so strongly in me that that sort of if we can rediscover and reclaim our bodies, and it's not just about women doing that; it's about all of us doing that. What a, what a world it could be, you know. I think. Well, I mean, I'm 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 predisposed to. Uh, I, I like embodiment. You know, there's no doubt about it. I'm I'm in favor of embodiment. I'm in favor of bodies, and I'm. I believe that um that that what you've described um is is to me engages my my interest and in, in, in it, it tells but it, it well I tell you what 
I mean, that really, really I find curious is that we both of us attended Tyson Younger Porter's um, talk, you know, because that's in a way another of the meeting when we didn't know that we were meeting yes. each other. But, but you know, that configuration that you just gave is classic binary thinking. And I don't dismiss it because of that. Mind, he, body, she. And it, it, it's, that goes right back to the exploitation of nature, the body, and the oppression of women as nature. And I believe that, you know, that's the way we think. I think that we think like that, not because, not because we naturally think like that, because we've been taught to think in these binaries, because it sort of holds things for us. For a, for a period, it's a binary thinking is a means of control, and and um, you know when you look at the binary culture, you look at nanotechnology, you look at the way in which we've been invited to uh, uh, control uh, knowledge through information. I think it is through this sort of binary, this binary structure. So I do think that the impulse for practice, I would call it, of physical practice, activity, embodiment, I think is a movement towards materialism and material truths. And I incline that way. And you're right, of course, to point out that these these aspects of of human development um, that I'm indicating by playing out these sort of slightly stupid words, I suppose, like patriarchy, capitalism, neoliberalism. They are ideas, but they're no more ideas than than if I point to the table. It, it, it's table. It's, it, you, you have to call things by names, and I, those names may not be so useful, but and, the, and they, you're right, they're slightly abstract, I think. You know, capitalism is a system. Um, neoliberalism is a kind of system, but and that makes it a little bit more usually. It's inactive, therefore, all of these things are enacted processes, and that makes it a little bit more real. But I agree, I, and I agree that it's sort of physical. And but what what happens? What the the thing that happens to me with these ideas is that it ends up being. People have interacted with them so much that there is, at least to me, who's not as, I guess, um, well-versed in the nuances of them as I wish I would be, um, is that there is, there, it cramps out the space for uncertainty a little bit. And so when we don't have that uncertainty, then there's also that, there's not, um, I don't know, but it feels like, and I don't know if this is correct. In, in a strict sense, but it, it feels like without uncertainty, we have less room for evolution, less room for variation, less room for propagation of new ideas. And there, there's something around, I was listening to an AI, um, AI researcher person who was working with evolutionary AI. And he says, the, I'm paraphrasing, of course, and I'm collapsing his argument because I cannot make it as nuanced as he can. But he, he said something to the way that I understood it, which was that if you want to design for one thing in an evolutionary AI to make sure that it it uh, is potent, uh, you want to de- design for uh, diversity. You have to figure out 
a way to maintain the diversity. Otherwise, the system collapses. And there's something around the ideas, and you know, we touched on the truth, which is is good, and it's this collapsing and flattening of layers, which should really not be flattened. And mm, the ideas and the the biology that the, there's a there's something here that I haven't pieced together yet. Um, but it's in this we've we've kind of drawn the we've drawn the theater, if you will, and, and now you know it's up for the it's up for the all these components to get on stage and start dancing with each other, and then you know maybe something will will uh, emerge. Well, I mean, I I think that um, that I take I take what you said um, as a useful cautionary. A warning about words that seem to be um, a little bit too totalizing, you know, that we've got, I think that I, I will be more careful about the way that I think about those big words. Sometimes I, I, I think really that what I'm indicating, I think, in using those words and and it, it's they are rather large undifferentiated concepts um, is just the connection between them really but that's that also I take your caution and I take the dialectical feeling that you have that that this is also this totalization is also a part of a kind of hierarchization and not living in the moment and not living in the body so i want to um, i want to take that uh, that that away with me and, and and in gratitude yeah and and also you know from immense gratitude for this conversation and it's going to be one of those that i will <laughs> it tends to be there there are these concepts that are and realizations that unfold in me and so speaking of this participation and that that resonance, um, you um, you have that influence on me, and so I'm very grateful for you offering up your time and and energy and focus and all of these things and to to go on this exploration with me. I'm, I'm very 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 grateful for well, you. Well, I'm Thank too. You. I'm very grateful. Thank you very 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 much, and I hope that we'll carry on um, the conversation and carry on working things out together. That's really important. To know things together is the key that we've. Uh, struck so thanks I would love that thank you